Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. We are starting a new series today called Living Greatly, the Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember from, uh, from the fall, we did a series on the Beatitudes called Kingdom Manifesto. And that, that was the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. You might remember the phrases, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for it will be theirs. That's how the Sermon on the Mount starts, and we're continuing what we did in the fall, starting now up until Easter. Also during the month of February, we are going to be looking uh, for illustrations of what it means to live live out the Sermon on the Mount from black history. February is Black History Month, and so we're going to be looking for figures from throughout black history and African history who embody what it means to live out the Sermon on the Mount. So I'll start with one, one particular person who lived uh, 200 years after Jesus, Cyprian of Carthage, Carthage in North Africa. Cyprian lived during the 250s, so, so more than 1,700 years ago there in North Africa. He was born into a wealthy family, but eventually he had a conversion to Christ, And as he matured in Christ, he eventually became a pastor there in Carthage and eventually a bishop that oversaw many churches in the area. And he was an interesting character because he oversaw the churches during a very difficult time there in North Africa. Carthage was part of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire at that time said that everyone in the empire must bow before and worship the gods of the Roman Empire. Well, you know that's a problem for Christians. We are commanded to worship the one true God and the one true God alone. And as Cyprian led the church there in Carthage, it was a lot of challenges. Because some people said, we are only going to worship Jesus Christ and no one else. But other people said, well, if it gets us out of trouble, we'll offer sacrifices to these Roman gods just to get out of trouble. And the church ended up kind of splitting. Some people left the church, and they left the faith because it was more convenient. Well, the persecution eventually ended, and a lot of the people who had left the church because it was more convenient decided to come back to church. (laughs) Well, now that it's a lot easier to be part of the church, we want to come back. And people who had stayed the entire time and suffered persecution said, wait a minute, We, we thought you weren't part of this. You know, we're in this together. We, we stand with you and with Jesus no matter what happens. And you can't just go in and go out when it gets hard and then easy. And so Cyprian had this kind of mess on his hands because there was this great division in the church for those who had stayed and been persecuted versus those who had left the church and had abandoned the church. And so in the moment that he was the bishop, there was a great sense of disunity. But... You know what else went on in Carthage at that time? An epidemic. Disunity and an epidemic. People were terribly sick, sprawling out in the streets, dying. What a rough moment to be a leader in the church. Not just of a church, but he was a bishop. He oversaw many churches. Well, he gathered the churches together, Cyprian did, 
in the midst of this disunity, in the midst of this epidemic, this pandemic, and he gathered the churches together, and he said, hey, let's focus on the forgiveness of Christ. And that was challenging because those who had been persecuted during the persecution felt some kind of way about the people in their neighborhood who had persecuted them. But Cyprian said, let's talk about forgiveness. Let's talk about love. Let's talk about imitating God. Let's talk about the Sermon on the Mount. And there in that tense moment in the church, he brought the churches together and said, let's live out the Sermon on the Mount together. In fact, later in his life, just two years before he died, he said this great thing from where we get the title of the series. Cyprian said, Beloved brethren, we are philosophers not in words but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our dress but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things but we live them. In other words, as Christians, we're not all talk. We're about the way we live. As Christians, it's not about appearing a certain way to the outside world. It's about doing something to bless this broken world. It's not that we speak great things. It's that we live them. And I'm encouraged that Cyprian would say that in the 250s during that tumultuous time of disunity and sickness because we ourselves live in a time of disunity and sickness as well. And if he can inspire the church from the Sermon on the Mount to live greatly, then we can be inspired by the words of Jesus as well to live greatly in this moment. Let's read God's word, Matthew 5, 13 through 20. Now, I want you to look as we go through the text because it's not just that uh, that Cyprian says to live greatly. Look for the part of this where Jesus talks about living greatly. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished." Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great, great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Amen. The word of God. Lord Jesus, be with us during this series as we unpack your word. We pray that we would know you better and love you more deeply. And all God's people said, if we were to ask a million people what it means to live greatly, we would get a million different answers. Some people would say to live greatly is to follow your dreams and reach them. 
Other people would say it's investing your life in others and helping, doing something significant to help other people. Still, others would say it's living in complete freedom. If I can do what I want, when I want, that's what it means to live greatly. But what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say about living greatly? Well, he defines living greatly in three ways in this text. He says that living greatly has to do with a reorientation of our lives. Living greatly has to do with a renovation in our lives. And and living greatly has to do with resting in his life. A reorientation, a renovation, and a rest. This is what it means to live greatly according to Jesus. So let's start with reorienting. We're called to reorient our lives towards God's kingdom. Now, in this passage, Jesus says this. He uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And a lot of times when Christians hear that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, what they think is, I'm waiting to go to heaven when I die. Now, that's true. When we die, if we know Jesus Christ, we go to heaven. But that's not necessarily what Jesus means by this phrase. Just one chapter earlier in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has said this. He began to preach, repent because the kingdom of heaven is not up there, it has come near. Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. When Jesus uses the phrase, the kingdom of God, what he's saying is that the reign of God has come to earth. Not reign like water, but the government of heaven has invaded this broken world. God's space has come into our space through the King Jesus. God's character is manifesting itself on this earth. His justice, his love, his mercy, his compassion are coming to expression through Jesus Christ, and that is good news. And we are called to reorient our lives towards that, to reorient our lives towards God's kingdom. What that means is that we must accept God's reign in our life. We must surrender to him as king. See, one one of the challenges with living greatly is we, we often start off, well, living greatly means I get out of life what I want to get out of life. We're all there, right? Who wants to live a life that they don't want to live? But that's not what Jesus tells us. Look look what Jesus, how he orients us in verse 19b. He says, whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Fundamentally, he's saying, listen, there's, there's there's a better way to judge what greatness is. And it's not about what you want or how you want to live. It's about what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. Reorient yourself to that kingdom. Start by asking the question, who is God? As the Bible tells us, what is he doing in this world? Live lives that demonstrate who God is. Exhibit what it looks like when he's in charge. Live as a citizen of God's kingdom. See, in our vision statement at New City Fellowship, we say we are God's blended family gathering together to joyfully worship King Jesus and going out going out to demonstrate God's kingdom. Going out to demonstrate God's kingdom in our homes, on our streets, in our places of work. We're there to to be vessels of God's justice and mercy and compassion and love and righteousness. 
And so the question for you is, are you oriented to God's kingdom? Are you oriented to God's kingdom? Now, what happens often in our lives is we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. We take our career, we take our family, we take our love life, and those are good things, but they're never meant to be the sole orientation of our life. And often what happens is we take those good things, we make them into an ultimate thing, and we orient our lives around that, and we put God's kingdom on the back burner. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Reorient your life to God's kingdom. You know, oftentimes, right now in this moment, we get, we get lost in the stories of our culture rather than being oriented to the story of God's kingdom on earth. So, so any time that I turn on the news or open Instagram or look at YouTube, there is a politician or a pundit telling me something, orienting my soul to how I should function in the world. And we can't stop these messages from coming at us. But what happens to our hearts is we often get caught up in much smaller stories than the kingdom of God on earth. We get caught up in much smaller stories. And all of a sudden, the bad news that these pundits and politicians are telling us replace the good news of God's kingdom here on earth. Have you ever noticed that too when, when, you, when you open up the app and you start listening to politicians? M much of what they say is about the bad news from the other guys. I mean, that's their platform. I need something more than that personally. I need some good news about not just, not just the hypocrisy of others, but, but something that's invading and infiltrating our world. So, so listen, let me step on your toes just a little bit. If you're more oriented in your week by what Ben Shapiro says or Sean King says, you are missing out. Now, now pastor, you, but they say, I'm, I'm not necessarily even talking about what they say. I'm talking about the orientation of your heart. I'm talking about how your heart is oriented. If you're constantly listening to politicians and pundits and they're setting the orientation of your heart, you will miss out on being oriented to the kingdom of God here on earth. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. God is invading this world through Jesus Christ, and we are called to reorient our life towards his kingdom because it is good news. But that also means that we're called to renovate our life with God's commands, to renovate our life with God's commands. Um, when Jesus comes on the scene, the context for what he's teaching in this particular passage has to do with the Old Testament use of the law. So you notice he'll use words like the law and the prophets. He's referring to the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way through the, the books of history, all the way through the books of prophets. That's the context that he's gonna teach his disciples. Because at that time, there were different groups of people who interpreted the Old Testament law in different ways. First, there was a group called the scribes. And the scribes were like the lawyers in the sense that they knew a lot about God's commands. 
They knew a lot about his laws, but the problem was they didn't necessarily do them. (laughs) They knew a lot about them, but they didn't put them into practice. They didn't apply them. And the Pharisees, now the Pharisees were practitioners, meaning they did do them. They did the laws, but what they, what they began to do is say, well, if God says, like, don't come over here, then we should just say, let's not come over here or let's not come over here. In fact, let's not even come in the sanctuary building. Let's just make sure that we stay out of the building so that no one gets right here. In fact, anyone that's seated out there on the steps of the front porch of the church, we should tell them that they're sinning. Do you see what they're adding they're adding to the commands of God. If, if the command is don't stand right here, it doesn't help to say don't sit way out there. It's not the same thing. But that's what the Pharisees began to do. And they began to see, uh, be seen by the people as the ones who really obeyed because they added all these t- commands to the commands of God. But what happened when they did that is they lost the whole point of the rule. They, they lost the motivation. Jesus will later say in Matthew 23, you scribes and you Pharisees, you tithe your spices, like you get your spices out and you take a tenth out to give to the Lord, but you've missed the big picture. You've missed the justice and mercy and righteousness that the law was really about. To put it into practical terms, if you're a parent, you want your kid to say thank you when they're given something. Or if you're an auntie or you're an uncle and you have a nephew or niece, if, if someone is generous with that child, you want them to say thank you. You want them to say thank you because when they say thank you, it's a way to love their neighbor back, right? If someone's generous to them, you say thank you back. It's a way to, to love your neighbor. But, but not only that, you know that life just goes better if you say thank you, right? But even deeper than that, you want them to be thankful in the heart. You're so thankful for what everyone else has done for you. You want to teach them not just to say thank you, but to be thankful in the heart. And so you command them, say thank you. Now, if you have a little scribe, if your child is a little scribe, what what the child would do is say, oh, thank you. Okay, well, I can say thank you in 10 different languages. Not only that, but I can give you the whole history of the development of the phrase thank you. And you say, that's not what I asked you to do, kid. I just said, say thank you. That's what it's like for a scribe. For a Pharisee, if your kid was a little Pharisee, you would tell them, listen, I want you to say thank you when you're given something. And they they would go, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. And you say, what was that? I just asked you to say it one time and to say it from your heart. And they say, well, if you say say it one time, we might as well do it 60 times. You say, no, that's not the point. You missed it. You missed it because I want you to say thank you out of a heart that's deeply thankful. That was the point of the command. Not that you know a lot of stuff about the phrase thank you. Not that you say it 60 times to prove a point, but rather that you say it out of a thankful heart. This is what the scribes and Pharisees were like. And the people that were around them didn't know any better. They thought they were the super spiritual people. They weren't super spiritual. They were super superior in their hearts. They looked at other people and thought, we do this better than them. We follow the commands of God better than them. So we are superior. 
But, but actually, they were inferior. The reason that they were inferior is because they set the standard to something that they could achieve. In my front yard, we have a basketball hoop, and it's adjustable. And I, I, I can put that hoop so it's like right here. Finger roll, tomahawk dunk. My kids are down there like heaving it up and they can't get it up. That's unfair, right? Because I've set it to something that's easy for me. I've adjusted it so it fits me. And now I feel great about myself because I can dunk on them. I don't do that, by the way. But but, but here's the point. The, The Pharisees and the scribes have adjusted things to their level so that they can dunk on other people. They can dunk on other people. And we have to be careful when it comes to God's commands because we will use God's commands to dunk on other people as well. So when we come from a blended family of diverse people, we will each have different things in our culture that are beautiful and broken. And I can tend to look at my culture's beauty and look at your culture's brokenness and say, oh, well, we're more like God. That's sin. <laughs> That's sin when we have that in our hearts because we're adjusting the standard to fit us. Cody talked about last week how we look at worship in different ways. And we can see, we can see different aspects of worship and how it works. And then we go, well, if we worship this way, it's more spiritual. And if we worship that way, it's less spiritual. When the Bible never says that. We can do that with the way that we look at alcohol, the way that we look at justice. We make standards for other people that we ourselves don't even live up to just so we can dunk on them and feel good about ourselves. Well, what's what's the answer then? So Jesus is saying, don't be superior like the Pharisees. Well, he must mean then like everybody just take a chill pill. Everybody, let's just relax the commands of God. Let's just make it a little bit easier for everybody else. Let's lower the net so that everyone can drop the ball in. Except he doesn't say that. (laughs) Jesus doesn't say that. Uh, The Pharisees accused Jesus of ignoring the Old Testament law because he didn't follow their man-made laws. But look what he says about God's law in verse 18 through 19. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, Not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. In other words, what's written in the law, I'm not even going to take out a comma because the law is from God and it's good. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, first of all, Jesus doesn't relax the commands of God because every command of God comes from God's heart that we would love God or love neighbor. And every command of God embodies his character. So if we say, well, that command doesn't matter, then we're saying God's character doesn't matter. Uh, in In the Old Testament, God commanded that the Israelites build little parapet walls on their roof. So if they were all up on their roof at night when there was no lights, the parapet wall would keep them from walking off the roof when it was dark. Now, why did God command that? It's not busy work. It's because God values human life. 
All the commands of God come from his heart and from his character. And so we have to understand that when Jesus says things like, if you love me, you will obey my commands, we can't just ignore that. Jesus means it. Because all the commands of God come from the character of God. Well, then what the heck is Jesus going to do if he's not going to tone down the commands of, law, of the law for us so that we can actually do it? What's he going to do? Here's the crazy thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, he turns the commands up. Turns them up. I mean, if you see the disciples, they are a mess. In fact, we are a mess. How in the world are we going to do these commands if Jesus isn't going to tone them down, but rather he's going to make them harder? Look what he says in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, surpass? How are sinners supposed to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees? Well, you might look at Jesus and say, well, Jesus, look, I mean, I ain't killed nobody. But in the next part of the sermon, Jesus is going to say, that's great that you haven't killed nobody, but you have a deep anger in your heart and a deep hatred for specific people. And we say, well, well Jesus, listen, I, I didn't sleep around. I could have slept around, but I didn't sleep around. And Jesus says, well, you didn't sleep around, but, but in your heart, you're thinking about your friend's spouse all the time. And you say, Jesus, go easy here. I mean, uh, I love my neighbors. In fact, after church today, I'm having a socially distanced barbecue for my neighbors to come over and watch the Super Bowl so I can tell them about Jesus. And he says, yeah, but you really like your neighbors. What about those people that you don't like? What about those people that have used their power to hurt you? or have treated you poorly. So Jesus, where is this going? This is completely unmanageable for me to accomplish. I cannot do these things. Jesus, it feels like you're trying to dunk on us. And Jesus might say, I'm not trying to dunk on you. I'm trying to teach you how to live greatly. I want you to stop trying to manage your outward righteousness. I want you to stop making things look good on the outside when they're black on the inside because what you need is not a managing of your outward spiritual appearance. You need a renovation of your heart according to God's commands. And the only way that you can get that is through relationship with Jesus. The only way that you can get that is through relationship with Jesus. Do you remember how the Sermon on the Mount started? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they know they can't manufacture righteousness on their own and they need God's help. And so they come to God and say, God, I have nothing to offer you but my sin but I see your righteousness and I want it. Scotty Smith says, exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees then is a matter of obeying God from a fundamentally changed heart 
This is a heart that reaches beyond the legalistic boundaries of the law to its compassionate purposes while simultaneously recognizing its own spiritual poverty apart from God's mercy. Living greatly is living according to the commands of God, but not in a superficial way, in only a way that Jesus can do in us. And so that starts with us not going, what can we do for God, but what has God done for us through Jesus Christ? Uh, It starts with us not saying, I want to imitate God, but rather I need to find my identity in Jesus. It doesn't start with us looking at our spiritual resume, but rather resting, resting in the life of the King, King Jesus, the, the Messiah. Verse 17 through 18, Jesus says this, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, let me stop there just for a second. When he says truly I tell you, he is taking a place of authority. Because the way that the teachers of the law taught at that time was was to say, God tells us. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, I tell you because he's God. Jesus is the king, and he's giving us a sense of his authority as he goes on to say, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Now, Jesus starts by saying, I tell you to say that his interpretation of the law is the final interpretation. You don't got to listen to the scribes. You don't got to listen to the Pharisees. Listen to me. But he's saying more than that. He's saying, I'm the one who will not just tell you about the law, I will accomplish it for you. I'm not just the one who tells you what to do when you can't fulfill the law, I will fulfill it for you. All God's commands are righteous, and Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law by loving God 100%, 100% of the time, and by loving his neighbors 100%, 100% of the time. Jesus was the one who did the law, not from a superficial, keep it together, outward projection of spirituality, but who loved God's law and delighted in it and it did it from the heart and accomplished God's commands, his righteous commands for us so that when we find our identity in him, when our faith is placed in Jesus, we are resting in his life and what he's done for us because he represents us before God and says to us, come, rest in me, I am righteous for you. In fact, when Jesus was baptized at the Jordan River, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to be baptized with sinners And John was going, hey, Jesus, what what are you doing? This is a a baptism for repentance of sin. You're not a sinner. And Jesus said, I've come not to be baptized for repentance on the sin, but rather to identify myself with sinners, to fulfill all righteousness. As Christians, we're called to obedience, but not from a posture of religion, rather a posture of relationship with Jesus Christ. 
God had provisions in the law of sacrifice after sacrifice that were needed to atone for sins when sinners like you and me fell short of the glory of God. But when Jesus goes to the cross, he fulfills that by becoming the final sacrifice. And his body is laid in the tomb after he atones for our sin. He comes back from the dead to bring us new life, and he sends the Holy Spirit into us to give us new hearts. Jimmy Dodd puts it this way. He says, religion centers on behavior modification while Jesus brings deep inner transformation. Religion reforms people on the outside, but Jesus transforms people on the inside. Religion is saying, I begrudgingly obey, therefore I'm accepted. Jesus is saying, through me you are accepted, therefore joyfully obey. Religion needs a list to feel justified. The gospel reminds us that we are justified because Jesus is the list. Religion tells us that we are saved through obedience to Jesus. The gospel declares that we are saved by the obedience of Jesus. Religion makes people nice. Jesus makes people new. Jesus makes people new. How do we live greatly? Yes, reorienting our lives to God's kingdom. Yes, renovating our lives with God's command. But that comes primarily from not what we do, but resting in what Jesus has done for us on his work on the cross. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.